Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can get access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. Today, I'm going to try something new. Instead of publishing an interview that I did myself or a Q&A where I answer your questions, I'm going to use my platform to publish an interview conducted by somebody else. Now, this requires a bit of an explanation. My friend Desh Amila, who's a filmmaker and producer, organized an event with Julian Assange in 2017. He filmed the event at the time and then forgot all about it until a few days ago when he came across the footage by coincidence. When Desh offered to publish this footage using my platform, I was hesitant at first because I worried that publishing this on my podcast would give people the impression that I support Julian Assange's actions or that I support WikiLeaks as an organization. So let me say this up front. I'm agnostic about whether Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have done more good than harm for the world, as their supporters must believe. It's just not clear to me. And my publishing this interview should not be taken by anyone as an endorsement either of him or of WikiLeaks. As you all know, I'm a big defender of free speech and transparency. And because of that, you might expect that I would always take the side of the whistleblower who reveals important secrets held by governments or powerful corporations. For example, I had Francis Haugen, the Facebook whistleblower, on this show just a few months ago. And I gave her a very friendly interview because I thought that what she revealed about Facebook was clearly a net good for the world. Yet my support for free speech and transparency in general doesn't automatically extend to every specific release of hacked information, especially cases where that information could hurt people. When you reveal state secrets about a war that's still happening, it's possible that you're giving the enemy crucial information that could help them kill our soldiers. For instance, Julian Assange's 2010 leak of the Afghanistan war papers didn't redact all the names of Afghanis who were helping us. When these names were leaked, the Taliban basically said, thank you for giving us this list of names. We're going to kill all these people now. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that was the gist. And Julian's response to this was to shift blame to the U.S. government for refusing to help him censor the sensitive information. Now, WikiLeaks' irresponsibility in this vein came up again in 2016 when they released hacked emails and other materials from the Democratic National Committee servers. Among the info they released were credit card numbers, social security numbers, and passport numbers of Democratic donors, even small-dollar donors. That's information that could have easily been redacted. Now, on the other side of the moral ledger, the Afghanistan leaks and the Iraq war leaks really did reveal ugly things that the coalition forces had done in terms of collateral damage and civilian deaths that had not been previously reported by the military or by the media. And the DNC leaks revealed that the DNC was hugely biased against the Bernie Sanders campaign. And these are all things that the public has a right to know, and things that we might not know if not for those leaks. 
So in the end, I don't know if WikiLeaks has been a net good or a net harm for the world. And that's a conversation I'll have to continue another time. But I'm certain that their lazy approach to redacting information has hurt innocent people. So with that said, I present this never-before-seen interview with Julian Assange. Let me know what you guys think of it, and let me know what you think of me using my platform to publish material by other people. Is this something you would want more of, or would you prefer it if I just stick to publishing my own stuff? Let me know in the comments and enjoy the interview. There he is. Hello. Chaz, can you hear me? The webcam's on, by the way. He can see you, so don't push him. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Julian, let's get uh, right into it. Um, what is your Gmail password? Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> I didn't so, think it would be that easy. You thought you might get somewhere with that question, uh, uh -huh. but of course I don't use email. You can't, oh, okay. Well, can't blame the guy for trying. Uh, what actually is WikiLeaks these days? Because, you know, we, is it just you? Do you have staff? What, 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 what is the organization? How big is it? Do they, the people that are there, do, they, do you order them around? What is it? Yeah, well, WikiLeaks is a small multinational uh, publishing organization. Uh, we have people in uh, every continent except Antarctica. Uh, Disappointing. We have, I don't know, a few million in Bitcoin uh, in the bank, which has been appreciating. It's, very, it's quite hard to cash out, actually. What's that uh, mean? I'm, What's that mean I'm, a few million Bitcoins? Well, back, back when Bitcoin was started, we had, this is a, I mean, it's a long story. We had a, uh, and still have, uh, in part, a banking blockade by Visa, MasterCard, PayPal, Diners Club, American Express, uh, Discover, Swiss Post, Finance, and Western Union. Uh, and that banking blockade ar arose politically. It wasn't done within the legal systems, entirely political, uh, representing the, uh, on the one hand, the, uh, connectivity within, within and between uh, the U.S. Uh, financial elite and the U.S. security elite, and on the other hand, uh, a, a fear of uh, regulation by uh, those companies, and therefore they self-regulate in response to political pressure uh, and erected a blockade against us, right. which we litigated at the... European Union and in the Icelandic courts where we managed to find a subsidiary of uh, Visa and MasterCard and grab our teeth onto that, took it to the Supreme Court at one, knocked it down, we're suing for, for a few million in damages now. Uh, and the, 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 we've won the case, now it's just assessing uh, the damages. So during that period, uh, this uh, very interesting and impressive a uh, new intellectual currency, purely intellectual, uh, Bitcoin. Which I, I know what Bitcoin are, but how much is that worth in terms of actual, say, American dollars? Well, it's a few million. Okay, uh, that makes sense. <laughs> in theory, but I mean, we yeah. collected it during this period and then it appreciated and we invested it uh, in other Bitcoin things uh, by about 9,000%. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so sure. that kind of... We lost 97% uh, 
of our income. That's poor investment. Uh, and at the same time, we had to fight this enormous uh, attack by the U.S. government and effectively its its proxies and supporters. And are you uh, the are you the yeah. WikiLeaks Twitter account at the moment, or is there other people doing it? There's a rotating staff. It depends on the time of day, but. Uh, you can blame me for anything that's there. Oh, we will. Because I'm the editor, and many people do. <laughs> okay. Um, look, obviously, uh, you live an unusual life, <laughs> locked in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, how do you actually spend your day? Like, do you help out at the embassy? What do you do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I spend most of my day uh, dealing with the difficulties of running an organization uh, fighting a dozen different court cases, mm. half of which have been, about half of which have been taken against us, half of which uh, we have taken uh, against others. That's, mm. uh, uh, you know, it's like running a, a newspaper as well as criminal cases. So it's, it's quite involved. Uh, and then th there's a lot of politics as well. There's politics uh, inside the embassy. Uh, there's uh, uh, a big security situation, which is, you know, people trying to infiltrate the embassy, trying to bribe uh, the embassy staff, uh, trying to bug the embassy. A number of those bugs have been discovered. Uh, following people who come in and out of the embassy, setting up robot cameras around the embassy. So it's a quite that, involved, quite an involved. Yeah. yeah. On that note, how do the Ecuadorian embassy staff, the actual staff, is there? How do they feel about you being there? I mean. They must have been really pissed when you got the internet cut off, for instance. So, like, so, like how do they feel? Do, do, do you relate well to them? They loved it. They loved it. <laughs> uh, no, no, I'm joking, but uh, <laughs> my fast internet, uh, they managed to get hold of during the period where it was cut off for me. So okay. They're, they're Are, are you their IT guy? They're a bit reluctant to, to hand it back. <laughs> do, do, uh, quite seriously, do you do, do, you do IT for them? Yeah, in part. <laughs> in part, I mean, but there's, you know, it's uh, an, embassy, an embassy, the Ecuadorian embassy represents the Ecuadorian people, uh, but it also represents the Ecuadorian state. So it is, a, it is an embassy. It is a state apparatus. Uh, and so there, you know, there's, if you like, demarcation uh, issues with embassy stuff. Sure. Versus my stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, do you get visitors? Yeah, they get, we get visitors. Uh, it, it's a bit in, involved security situation to get people in. They have to be checked out, booked in 24 hours in advance, many passports. It's, you know, it's coming into an embassy, coming into an embassy, which can sometimes be hard, uh, but it's also coming into an embassy that's in the middle uh, of an extremely serious uh, intelligence siege, which the UK government admits just on the uh, police component of that siege, uh, it is spending four million pounds a year. Yeah. It, in all seriousness, you've been in a, in a situation where you get less exercise than a high security prisoner for the last five years. What, what is, what's the stuff that you miss the most that you might not have expected to miss? Yeah, I don't really want to go into it. Uh, I don't like creating uh, any kind of general deterrent. Uh, so I, I think people should just as assume actually that uh, intellectually I'm, you know, my mind is in, in the world doing amazing things. 
actually, frankly, amazing things. Uh, and that's very exciting. There you go. But I don't want to create a, a kind of, you know, that there's, there's, there's such an expectation uh, that if you uh, create, create difficulties, expose, expose the truth uh, in our history about uh, big powers, uh, then it is a form of natural justice uh, that you suffer. It's not a form of natural justice. That's complete rubbish. Uh, it's a form of artificial uh, corrupted justice uh, where the supposed uh, ideals of the justice system are thrown to the wind because of politics. Uh, but it's, it's, not, it's not an ideal. Uh, and we shouldn't push that. Uh, you know, there, there's a, if you look at an organization like the ACLU, and we've been guilty of it as well, to be fair, but if you look at an organization like the ACLU, it's in the, the kind of the business of securitizing uh, government malfeasance. Uh, so, uh, and the suffering that derives from it. So if you look at the appalling uh, treatment of Chelsea Manning, one of our alleged sources, which we uh, have, have had an amazing victory uh, with getting clemency. Uh, but if you look at that abusive treatment, there's a, a, a desire by many people to project forth the, the image of the sufferer uh, and the injustice of the, the suffering person. Uh, but, you know, actually, both the ACLU, I don't mean to pick on them particularly, but they're just an example, but the, the ACLU plus the Department of Justice and the Pentagon are pushing the same narrative, which is that if you expose the truth, you will suffer. Mm. Uh, and that's a problem. Yeah. Because I nearly, nearly all of our sources, uh, you know, 99, 999 of a thousand, uh, don't have any problems, that they're invisible because they're, you know, they do their amazing act and can contribute knowledge to all of us uh, and do something very important for WikiLeaks. Uh, and then they go back to, you know, being within their uh, bureaucracies or companies or computer hackers uh, and go on and live their happy and now slightly more fulfilled, slightly more paranoid uh, lives. <laughs> and it all works out really well, uh, but we don't hear about them. We don't see it. We don't see them, and we don't perceive them. We okay. only perceive people that are in public, uh, which the you know supporters amplify as examples, uh, and which uh, governments and states and big corporations also amplify as negative examples to set a general deterrent. Okay. Um We've talked about, we've mentioned ACLU, which is the American context. You've mentioned the English police, but obviously you're an Australian citizen. You've been in this embassy. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm not. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, so one point in time, you're an Australian citizen. Uh, you, you've been no, in this no, embassy I'm, for five I'm years. Saying, saying like, what does that, what does that phrase mean? I don't, it, do, it, it doesn't have any practical meaning for me. I, you can disregard it. But my question is: My question is, you've been in the embassy for five years. I am an Australian. Yeah. I'm cultural and Australian, sure. Uh, and my relatives are Australian. Okay, and uh, you've, you've. But Australian citizen is a technical concept, yeah. uh, which, in my case, is completely meaningless. I, I, it doesn't. I, mean 
I get a strong sense that you're going to want to in, 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 answer the question I'm about to ask, which is, you've been there for five years. That's basically 12 Australian governments. What have, throughout all these governments, what have any of them done to help you out? And, and have any of them been different to the other ones? Or has it been a consistent line the whole time? Uh, nothing. Nothing. Uh, it, I suppose, uh, I mean, none of them have been helpful. None, none has been helpful at all. There's a question whether any of them did anything at all. Uh, very briefly, when Rudd uh, was foreign minister, uh, he forwarded to us one document where the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs had asked the Swedes some questions about interpretation of what might happen to me, which was forwarded. That's it. That is it. Uh, well, what else happened? One more thing. They brought me a pen when I was in uh, prison and some paper. I hope the pen That's didn't it. leak. That's it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Um, and, and they're not, not, even, not even that pretense. I mean, you, uh, we can understand, of course, what Rudd was doing, but, I mean, it's good that he was doing it, mm. which he was creating some internal paper trails, uh, which uh, we heard that he encouraged us and other journalists to foyer communications between him and Gillard. Uh, and so we'd get hold of these internal communications where uh, he was saying, as foreign minister, look, the situation with Assange is not very good. And, of course, Gillard doing nothing about it. So you can understand what that was about. But it's good that he, it's good that he saw that there was something in the Australian public that wanted that uh, and had the, the courage to take the opportunity. But... Uh, since since that point, nothing. And Bob Carr, Bob Carr says in his autobiography that he lied. Uh, he said that I had received more constant support than any other Australian, uh, and admitted that it was a lie. Uh, and he had made that lie. Uh, he says in order to quote needle me. Well, he won't be appearing on this show because it's no more secrets, no more lies. Um, the uh... it's not, I have to say it's not just me. I mean the the. Australia doesn't really exist, you know, as a as a state. It doesn't actually exist. What about Pauline Hanson? Because she's your have, new mate. So has she called you at all? Policy. It's a it's a colonial country that that doesn't have a sense of itself. It doesn't have its own land. It doesn't have its own language. It doesn't have its own foreign policy. So you have to understand. Yes, there's an Australian culture, uh, kind of disappearing, perhaps quickly. Uh, but there is there isn't actually an Australian state in, in the in the se in the sense that there are in the sense that there is say uh, an Ecuadorian state uh, or a Russian state or an American state. There's, there's not an Australian state. Look, that confuses me a little, so I'm going to move on. Um, the you've been through over the last five years, quite what well, more than five years, last fifteen years, quite a quite a road. You at one point in time were kind of the darling of the left. Then, with, during the last election, you became kind of the darling of the right. Um, I mean, how do you how, how do you feel about that to be to be loved so loved and hated alternately by the same people? And is there anyone who's really loved you who you've just had absolutely no time for? Who's the person you're most embarrassed to be loved by? Uh, David Duke, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I I don't. 
you know, he he trolls basically. He mm. he says that he appreciates someone for doing something, and he's done it to many many people because he knows exactly what will happen, which is the media will pick it up and go, "Oh my God, David Duke said something nice about this guy," mm. and therefore he'll get his name into the he get his name into the press. Mm. But um, fair enough. How, how would you describe yeah. your own political leanings? Because right? there's mind, plenty of people I, on the internet. I don't that, that was not politically helpful, obviously, yeah. but uh, I, I don't mind being liked by people, even bad people. You know, it's it's not a, it's um, it's look when Vladimir Putin's government uh, gave Edward Snowden asylum, which I was, in, I mean, I wrote the application. Uh, that was the right thing to do for all the other problems that that government has internally and a, and, a, and a few externally. That was the right thing to do, and so that should be applauded. Similarly, when uh, Sarah Palin went from saying, I should be hunted down like the Taliban, uh, we had published her emails. Uh, she was using a, a private uh, Gmail account. Uh, in effect, who knows whether it was intentional, but in effect, uh, evading the Alaskan Freedom Information Act. She was governor of Alaska. Um, she came out uh, about a month ago and apologized, uh, and, uh, re and much more interestingly, uh, recommended that uh, people watch uh, Citizen Four about mass surveillance. So that's the right thing to do. So she should be uh, applauded for actually having the courage to not stick with a previous position, having the courage to overturn a previous position, which can make you look hypocritical, uh, but is the right thing to do. Question, what would you do if your business had to hire great people fast? Here's a hint, you need Indeed. Indeed is a hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Finding great talent doesn't have to be a second job. You can hire faster and better with Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring partner that can help you do it all. Find great talent faster through time-saving tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. With Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed data. With Indeed, you only have to pay if an applicant meets your must-have requirements. Indeed puts you in control of what you pay. You set your must-have job requirements and only pay for applications that meet them. There's a transparent flat fee per application, and you can pause your job posting whenever you want. When you sponsor an Indeed post, you're 4.5 times more likely to get a hire, according to Indeed data. Even better, Indeed's the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements. The right candidate is doing everything they can to find you. And if you use Indeed, you can be sure you're doing everything you can to find them too. Indeed is the number one source of hires in the U.S., according to Talent Nest. Join the more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And Indeed's doing something no other job site has done. Now with Indeed, businesses only pay for quality applications matching the sponsored job description. Visit indeed.com slash conversations to start hiring now. Just go to indeed.com slash conversations. That's indeed.com slash conversations. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? 
You need Indeed. Okay, now the, the reason you're there, of course, is because Sweden wanted to haul you in for questioning over the sexual assault claims. Not charges, mind you, claims. No, it's not the reason why I'm here. No? I, don't know where, I don't know where people get this crap from. Mm-hmm. Actually, no. I do. I know exactly where they get it from. Yeah. <laughs> they get it from me, actually. That's where they get this crap. They, um, they get it from very fake news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, my, my question is this. The Swedish prosecutors finally interviewed you recently. So, which was what... At least I was led to believe that, that they were supposed to be trying to do. So, right. what happens then? Is, is it over? Yeah, like, no, like, where, where, what's the state of the Swedish situation? It's all rubbish. It's an entirely political situation. Uh, uh, if you, I have a lot of cases. If you want to talk about the Swedish case, many people in Western press do because it suits their, it suits their narrative and it involves the word sex. Uh, I was cleared in 2010... I was cleared by the chief prosecutor of Stockholm, found to be innocent. The case was closed and dropped. I've never been charged. It's at the stage of preliminary investigation. It's always been at the stage of preliminary investigation. Uh, And they outrageously uh, keep uh, a detention order uh, for, quote, questioning uh, going, have done everything in their power to not actually question. So that's still there? That order's still on, even though they've already talked to you? Yeah. Right. Okay. And, and just and just in no uh, just in uh, no, November, we then went to the Supreme Court uh, in Sweden. They were going to lose the case, so they flipped and then said, "Okay, we will." They then took a, another a year of feet dragging, uh, and finally, they actually did the kind of the first thing that you're meant to do in a case, which is uh, if, if there's allegations against someone, which there aren't really, but if the kind of state has at least allegations, okay. Uh, then you, then you might actually ask them if they're true. Yeah. And that, that's done the first time uh, in November. First it, time in November. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I wasn't so much asking so much as about the case itself, so much as just interested in your state in terms of where, like the, what you're facing from here on in. So, so, the, yeah. so that hasn't changed. Um, America hasn't charged you yet, right? You just hear well, that no, there might no, be charges at some point in time. This is complete nonsense. Yeah. Uh, we have had uh, what the Australian government says in its own diplomatic cables uh, is a, a case of uh, unprecedented scale and nature. That's Australian diplomats uh, reporting back to Canberra uh, against me. A grand jury which has sucked in people from all over the world, which has employed informants, which has sent uh, plane loads of FBI and prosecutors to different countries to, to interrogate people, to uh, fit people out with wires and so on to... Uh, to spy on me. Uh, it's well documented. It is admitted by the US government. It's been multiple times on the front page uh, of the New York Times that it's going. It's last admitted that it all continues uh, in uh, 2017. Now, whether uh, they have already created their sealed indictment or not, they refuse to say. They say that, they, they say that there is, quote, pending law enforcement proceedings, unquote. They refuse to say uh, whether they have filed their sealed indictment or not. They refuse to say whether they have already filed the, the extradition request to the United Kingdom. The United Kingdom refuses to say whether they have already received uh, the extradition request or not. The United Kingdom refuses to uh, reveal to journalists correspondence between the Foreign and Commonwealth Office and the Department of Justice as to whether there is 
uh, a sealed extradition order that has already come into UK. The natural state of affairs is a grand jury issues sealed indictment. A sealed indictment is turned into a sealed extradition order and is sent. Uh, now, whether they have sent it, whether they have activated, when they want to activate it, that's all a matter of, of political timing. But it's, it's absolutely clear that either a sealed indictment has already been filed in a sealed extradition request, right. uh, or alternatively, there is a virtual one, just waiting for the, for the right political timing. But they, they, all their actions in, in response to our lawyers, in response to the public, etc., uh, as exactly as if they have a sealed indictment. Okay, and meanwhile, you've got the Ecuadorian opposition leader. They're going to election in a couple of days, and then Ecuadorian yeah. opposition leader, if he Sunday. wins, he's chucking you out, right? Yeah, Las, Lasso. Yeah. Uh, there's another one. Uh, he's a conservative banker. Uh, we published a lot of cables about him. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Funny out. that. Yeah. Didn't make any friends there, I guess. But uh, <laughs> he's been in and out of the US Embassy repeatedly, uh, trying to get, you know, assistance from the United States. So if you're guessing where you're going to be in 12 months, what would you guess? I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's uh, the, the polling on the Ecuadorian election uh, suggests it, there's a, they have a French system, so, so they have an initial round and then a runoff uh, if, there's, if the candidate doesn't get above 40%. The polling suggests that no candidate will get above 40% will go to runoff goes to runoff, it will go uh, to runoff with the government candidate, Lenin, uh, and the uh, opposition leader, the, this banker, Lasso. Uh, it's, it's quite on the cards that Lasso could win in that context because uh, the opposition can then unify around a single candidate, uh, whereas the, uh, the government forces have already unified uh, around the government candidate who's polling about 32% presently. Okay. Um, but, I mean, it, it, shouldn't be, it shouldn't be a matter of politics. Uh, it should. I'm a refugee. <laughs> I'm a refugee, arguably, possibly the best-known refugee. Uh, and uh, I have, you know, a UN refugee card. I have refugee status. Uh, and that's a matter of law. Mm. It's a matter of so-called binding uh, international legal agreements and a matter for Ecuadorian law. It's I'm, not a matter of presidential whim. I'm not sure you know this, but refugees aren't very popular in the world at the moment, so that's, that might not help you yeah. much. Yeah, well, sure. Yeah. Um, by should, the way... It, it, shouldn't yeah. be a matter, it shouldn't be a matter of yeah. presidential whim. It's not in law a matter of presidential whim. If it comes to that, of course, uh, you know, we'll take what actions that, we'll take what actions that we can. Yeah. Uh, by the way, Brisbane, if you guys want to write some questions, we're going to have questions from you guys here, but also from you. They'll bring them up to me and I'll ask them. So please, please write questions. Um, let's talk about the general sort of ideology of leaking for, for a little while. I've done a fair bit of research for this interview. I've read almost a third of your Wikipedia entry. It is extremely long. Uh, and it's not no, very good. Yeah, it is. It's... Uh, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I'm not going to be one of these people that complains about the Wikipedia entry. Uh, <laughs> no, I am, I am. Um, be one of those people. <laughs> I am. Uh, no, it, I just find it very interesting be because we did a lot of experiments with this. We're called WikiLeaks, right? So yeah. uh, we did experiments to try and get crowdsourced analysis uh, of leaked documents. It didn't work. <laughs> uh, 
in, in a kind of in a Wikipedia way that I hoped it might. Um, not the documents, we'd verified them, but the analysis. Uh, that basically when something is a, a political matter, arguably when it has clear effects on power, uh, then those people who have the most incentive uh, to deal with political um, ideas, accusations, uh, go and do that. Uh, and that can include hiring fleets of PR, PR teams uh, to engage in black PR on, on Wikipedia. And so if you, if you look at all the political topics on Wikipedia, uh, they the final outcome represents uh, the, um, the number of people uh, on one side of the equation trying to edit an article, the number of people on the other, plus one more factor, which is the types of groups that have made their way up through the Wikipedia uh, administrative chain. So when there's a conflict, people in this administrative hierarchy can pick one side or another. So you often, yeah. So Wikipedia, Wikipedia articles about non-political topics can be very good. About political topics, it represents those clash of forces uh, and who has the numbers and who uh, has the resources to invest and who has managed to infiltrate uh, or naturally be in this uh, chain of hierarchy. To, to, to be fair, um, you've brought us a lot of insights tonight, but one of them is not that Wikipedia could be inaccurate. I think we all know that. <laughs> We're pretty much across Wikipedia yeah. being dodgy. Oh, look, 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 the press is very, very, very inaccurate. Yeah. Very inaccurate. So very fake news. It, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what I'd like well, to know when, is... When, when the narrative of, of, uh, of fake news came out... Uh, and was then taken up by the, effectively by the neoliberal press and pushed around because they uh, con considered, I guess, Macedonian kids writing in their bedrooms a, a challenge to their status uh, and economics. Uh, I, 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 I could see exactly where that was going and was rather happy about it. Like, WikiLeaks is very happy to, that there is a narrative about fake news out there because we have a perfect record of, yeah. of having ever got it wrong in, in terms of authentication. Right. So we, we, we see this would flip around immediately uh, on the mainstream press. So, yeah, Wikipedia is, is filled with errors in politics, but actually your average article in the mainstream press is probably worse. Sure. What, what I've found, though, no matter where you look around the internet, one thing you don't see a lot of are descriptions of what, WikiLeaks is actually aiming to do? What's the purpose of WikiLeaks? What's your goal? You know, I was, I was thinking about this the other day, um, that you don't see that uh, very much, even though I've gone on about it at, at length, and, but maybe that's the problem. Uh, well, so, so I, actually, I share with this audience some of my thinking on this problem, and, and maybe there needs to be a, a, a transition. So uh, what I first said... I have been saying for years is that uh, you know that you, you can't build a just civilization uh, out of uh, falsehoods. You can't build anything out of falsehoods, really. Uh, you can't build a you know a skyscraper out of plasticine. You can't you can't build a, a just civilization uh, out of lies. And so, at the moment, um, I say that. 
basically all our political theories are bankrupt. Uh, and the recommendations that flow from those theories uh, are therefore, you know, just not really well grounded. And why is that? Uh, because they don't understand how modern institutions actually behave. If, and if you're trying to come up with political programs uh, to regulate uh, how modern institutions should behave and, and reform them and work out what kind of society you want and what the laws should be, uh, well, you've got to understand what you're working with. Uh, and people don't understand that because institutions are largely opaque uh, and they, um, even where we, when we do glean some insights from them, not through WikiLeaks, but traditionally, uh, they pump out so much uh, rubbish uh, that it dilutes the, the truth as well. So WikiLeaks is a, designed to counter that tendency. It's, it's a, a kind of quaint, uh, old-fashioned enlightenment project to uh, produce the, uh, the base ingredients that you need for rational discourse. Uh, okay, but I think that's... <laughs> That's basically being too abstract. Now, there's lots of things that immediately flow from it, uh, such as if, if, uh, mm, such as uh, systematic abuse, uh, in order to be systematic, needs to have a, a accurate uh, chain of command, uh, and for abuse to occur at scale. Uh, you need things to be distributed. Uh, so that means it's quite hard to respond to WikiLeaks by just simply taking things off paper. If you do that, it, you can do that, but it will be, it will be in a relatively narrow area. Uh, if you do it, uh, anything that's systematic, there's going to be some records of it, like there was in Holocaust, for example. Uh, now, the, we like to introduce a chilling effect uh, into, in, into, into institutions, uh, that they cannot be confident uh, that any proposed idea that, in get, that involves some kind of systematic injustice, uh, we won't get hold of, either directly or because we've incentivized this whole, we've incentivized and encouraged this whole phenomenon. Uh, and I think that's an extremely positive, immediate thing. Okay, we also publish other things where you know, innocent people have been released from prison uh, based on what we've published, holding our documents over their head uh, as they walk out of prison and, of course, different, different forms of political situations and we contribute to academic research. But ultimately, I think that's probably all too complex and, and too abstract and as maybe a narrative that worked 10 years ago. Uh, but the, the way the world is moving now is, is to a, a, a simpler rhetorical form um, where everything, I suppose, has to be tweetable. Every concept has mm -hmm. to be tweetable. Uh, so I think, yeah, number one, uh, we believe in the, the a virtuous civilization comes from knowledge. Uh, number two, that we work to uh, promote uh, the rights of people uh, to have knowledge, to share knowledge, to communicate knowledge, to publish knowledge. Uh, and number three, that we're opposed to war. Uh, and that war is the most unjust thing uh, that civilizations do. Uh, and that, that 
wars are almost uniformly in, in democracies and in dictatorships started by lies. Uh, there's very few that are not started by lies. Lying and falsehoods are a central ingredient in starting war, which tells you that populations don't like war. Uh, and the colliery is that uh, the truth is what keeps the peace uh, and what starts peace. And so on, on, on we don't believe people should be killed in wars, uh, and uh, we think knowledge is the best way to facilitate that. Okay. On the, the question of lies and... Yeah. On the question of lies and truth, how can you know if someone has leaked you something which is basically an accurate document but then smuggled an Easter egg in which is inaccurate? Like, how can you tell that kind of thing? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's, uh, everyone can create these hypotheses, um, but WikiLeaks has a 10-year perfect record uh, of authentication across a million documents. Uh, it's not a million separate publications, but uh, several thousand, uh, several thousand separate publications. So, in terms of the the proof that our forensics and techniques and skepticism uh, and gut and weighing it all up is correct, we ha we have a record. Uh, if you want to talk about how that's done technically, well, no, if you okay. look at if you look at say, Okay. It's okay. So it's look, okay. <laughs> if you look at, say, the, the Podesta emails that we yep. published, John Podesta, uh, well, we had to reveal one of our secret spices, I suppose, uh, because someone else discovered it as well, uh, which is that uh, in modern, e modern email systems, uh, a cryptographic signature is added to uh, the emails as they pass, say, through, through Gmail. And this, crypt this cryptographic signature is mathematical proof uh, that it hasn't been changed since the point that it went through uh, that system. So, yeah, these are the kind of kind of tricks we use. It's 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 kind of it's kind of cool that like it's not every. We had lots of critics in the Democratic Party, liars in the Democratic Party, like the like Debbie Wasserman Schultz mm -hmm. and uh, Tim Kaine, uh, Hillary Clinton's running mate, mm -hmm. saying that what we published was not accurate, trying to intimate it, sometimes saying it directly. Uh, and, of course, we could mathematically prove that they were liars. And it, it's, it's, it's not every day that you can mathematically prove that your critics are full of it. That, that <laughs> sure. Um, another area where there's, there's controversy with regards to WikiLeaks is uh, Edward Snowden and Glenn Greenwald in the past, have, uh, who are also into leaking, have... Um, criticise WikiLeaks for not curating as much as they say you should. Now, I believe that you have in the past, in Cablegate, for instance, you've, um, you, you let some cables go because you were worried about, about repercussions for people in the cables. What, what is your policy about curating and about redacting? Well, I mean, Glenn Greenwald's a good, a good friend and I suppose is the most politically aligned to me. If you look, you look at his recent uh, critique, uh, both of the Trump administration and uh, I think much more interestingly of the war of the intelligence services against the, uh, the Trump administration, uh, we're aligned. Uh, and for Edward Snowden, I started his defense fund and got him out of Hong Kong and got him asylum. Uh, so yeah, I, I wasn't too pleased uh, when 
in the context of Edward Snowden's pardon campaign uh, to Barack Obama and us publishing the DNC uh, publications, which showed that, uh, that the US Democratic Party had effectively rigged, uh, fixed in various ways, uh, no, maybe it's too strong, ha had tilted the scale and engaged in various plots uh, to subvert Bernie Sanders' campaign, although their constitution obligated them not to. Uh, in that context, two days after we released the DNC uh, materials and the neoliberal press in the United States was looking for anything it could to attack, uh, Edward Snowden uh, made this criticism, which uh, he's a smart guy. He knows exactly uh, what that sort of thing does at that political moment. So he was not very happy with it. Um, but, yeah, this claims that WikiLeaks doesn't curate. It's complete nonsense. It doesn't understand what uh, curation is or modern curation. If, if there's a question about is WikiLeaks in the habit of publishing as much as it can, nearly everything, nearly all the time, uh, yes, we do, uh, versus others uh, who only publish select things. We're, we're, in, the, we're in the business of... Uh, not engaging as much as we can uh, of the corrupt business of censorship, which is a, which is a strong slippery slope, which we saw uh, in our dealings with various newspapers, where we said you can and should um, redact uh, cables if there's a credible risk uh, that someone could be subject to uh, retribution that might kill them. Uh, and, of course, they just then took that and, and used it to redact for all sorts of political reasons. So, uh, even redacting, for example, uh, corrupt uh, energy company, ENI, the company itself, uh, from cables about Kazakhstan, saying that it was corrupt. So um, we, we believe that that kind of process is very corrupting uh, and that redactions should be minimal only when there's a, a credible... Con a really credible concern about human rights violations on that person uh, and that the publisher, wherever possible, should explain that and it should be for a limited period of time. Uh, now, the, the Freedom of Information Act, in most places, does give limited periods of time. You, you, you can't just uh, keep, well, governments do, but according to the law, you can't just keep a document secret forever. You, know, you have 25 years of rules or 30-year rules uh, uh, and under the Freedom of Information Act, there must be an excuse each time to not uh, uh, to not reveal something. And we we believe that the press shouldn't be uh, more censorious uh, than states. That's absolutely outrageous. And the the consequence uh, um, the consequence for the Snowden archive, which of course Snowden hasn't had control over since uh, Hong Kong. We made sure he didn't have his archive when he got on the plane because we didn't want the Russians to get it. Uh, the, the consequence uh, for that archive is that more than 97% of it has never been released to the public. Nine, more than 97%. And lots of it won't be because the, the intercept is in the United States. So we criticised uh, Glenn uh, in that and Snowden. Uh, and they have, you know, they have to defend their reputations. Okay. So, so in, terms of, in terms of lines and stuff... If there's if there's a 
a strong, credible risk of someone being hurt badly or killed, then then that that falls into the zone where you're what, where you're thinking about redaction. But say privacy yeah. issues, privacy but issues for, aren't a but problem. For, but for a limited period of time, yeah. and, and but, still some point that the the credible threat has elapsed. Sure, but what I'm just trying to get across is because one thing WikiLeaks is being criticised for as well is the 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 releasing the information about Turkish women voters, the outing the Saudi that, gay guys. The privacy wrong. issues that's aren't issues for you, is that right? That story is made up 100%. We never publish such information at all, ever. It is okay. a completely made up story. Uh, it was spread uh, in the context of our DNC publications right, okay. uh, as, a, as a kind of, you know, a, a diversion uh, or attempt to uh, critique uh, WikiLeaks' reputation as a publisher to, to distract from uh, Hillary Clinton and her lot uh, fixing uh, the Democratic Party's campaign to make sure Bernie Sanders didn't win. It okay. is made up 100%. It is completely false. Okay, so has there, been a has there been a leak that you've published that you've regretted in hindsight? Well, probably everything. <laughs> <laughs> it's an honest answer. <laughs> uh, um, let's think. No, no, there, there, there aren't. I mean... We have a public editorial criteria, so it's, you know, we accept, I mean, I don't want to get, it'll get boring, but uh, we accept material of diplomatic, political, ethical, or historical significance that hasn't been published before that is under some kind of threat that prevents its easy publishing. So that's okay. what we do. Uh, something, fits, something fits that, uh, we'll publish it. Uh, we, we, also, we have lots of resource uh, you know, there's obviously cues and we need to prioritise uh, what comes out first. But if, as long as it fits that, we will publish it. Okay. Uh, perhaps, perhaps occasionally redacting things as little as possible. But if, if, it's, if it's really required. We've got a question here. Which, from, which, which yeah. it isn't. It, I mean, it almost never is. You, you have this, look, I'm not aware. Nothing that we've published has ever hurt anyone physically. The U.S. government had to had to admit that under oath in the in the Chelsea Manning trial. So, where does this narrative come from? It's a bullshit narrative. You know, it's a bullshit narrative that, uh, hang on, bullshit. What happens? The investigative journalists uh, investigate the Pentagon killing hundreds of thousands or millions of people and reveal that how it was done, why it was done, etc. Uh, and the, the response is just kind of kindergarten rhetoric. You know, you're in, in kindergarten and you say, uh, your mother stinks, and then the, the kid in the kindergarten turns around and goes, uh, well, your mother stinks double. It's, got nothing, it's got, actually got nothing to do with your mother. Uh, <laughs> similarly, when we publish about the Pentagon causing harm, it, it, se it sets up a rhetorical framework of harm and that harm is the, 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 the question under consideration. How many people has the Pentagon harmed? Uh, and therefore to create a diversion uh, for, you know, at least 50 years, the, the Pentagon just has a standard response. Intelligence agencies have a standard response, which is they go, oh, no, no, you're causing the harm. Yeah. I mean, it's kindergarten stuff. And what's, what's amazing is, they, you know, journalists are, look, mo most journalists are pretty, uh, they're not strategists. Mm. They're really not. They're kind of, 
opportunistic snipers at the best. Uh, and they don't hold the line. They, they buy into this... Um, they buy into this nonsense uh, about information being dangerous. Information very, very rarely uh, is dangerous. And not, not compared uh, to the very, you know, not compared to what government does. I mean, how, how, many, how many people get killed by Fords every day? Mm. It's, just, it's just, you know, it's a diversion. Look, uh, talking about kindergarten rhetoric, that leads in nicely to the American election. So um, uh, a couple of quick ones to set the scene. Firstly, did you receive any credible leaks in 2016 that were either anti-Hillary or anti-Trump that you didn't publish? No. No, okay. And you've said, you've said many times that Podesta leaks didn't come directly from Russia. But my question is, how could you know if well, they weren't... I'd have to say, no, we, we did. I mean, we received a, like, kind of some people saying things about people, like just <laughs> claiming Hearsay, uh, yeah. Hearsay. Yeah, okay. Uh, right. But we don't publish hearsay. We, yeah. pub we publish official documents. That's fair enough. So you've said that Podesta leaks didn't come directly from Russia, but how can you know if they weren't filtered down to you from Russia through a third party? Well, look, we're, we're not playing 20 questions about our sources. So no, sure, yeah. The, the, the first question was, uh, you know, we, we normally... Well, no, we occasionally give vague descriptions as to our sources mm. uh, where we think it's really essential to do so because there's enormous distraction, say, from the, from the publication. Uh, or, in, or in this case, uh, a climate arising, perhaps leading to some eventual future conflict with Russia. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we don't like saying anything. Uh, but I thought in this case, eventually, it was important uh, to react to this allegation that our source was a member of the Russian state, was a, a Russian intelligence person. Okay. Uh, and so, okay, no. Sure. It's, it's not, not someone from a state. This is not a state thing. Mm. Yeah? It's not someone from a state. Okay. Uh, so the goalposts were just moved. And then it was like, oh, well, does your source have any friends mm. uh, that are Russians? And, of course, if we, if we start going down this line, we're gradually we're describing uh, uh, our source, and that can be used to, say, oh, eliminate this person or this person or this person as, as being our source. Okay. Roger Stone, who is Donald Trump's do tricks buddy, he, he is good as but, announced... But, 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 but what's, what's the, like, pull back. Yeah. Where's all this coming from? Uh, it's, it's coming from... Uh, a corrupt Democratic Party apparatus uh, which removed the popular candidate, Bernie Sanders, who almost certainly would have won against Donald Trump, uh, to press them in a corrupt manner, which this is not just me saying this. After our publications, the top five people in the DNC were forced to resign by a popular revolt within the Democrats, including the president, Debbie Wasserman Schultz. Uh, so that happened. Uh, the population saw uh, what Hillary Clinton was saying to various banks and so on. We published her secret speeches, which were a journalistic holy grail uh, in, in the last 12 months. Basically, we just, we made it easier for Hillary Clinton uh, 
and her campaign manager and the head of the DNC, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, to communicate directly to the public. <laughs> to, get their, to get their message across in, you know, in a pristine way, uh, unfettered by, you know, the fake news press twisting it. Uh, and as a result, uh, American people didn't like what they saw. Uh, so, uh, so perhaps that contributed in some way to them losing sure. the election. Uh, yeah. But regard, whether it did or didn't, that apparatus within the Democratic Party uh, is now fighting for its life uh, against the reformation, the natural reformation uh, that happens after a party loses an election, where people go, you just lost an election against Donald Trump. <laughs> against Donald Trump. Uh, with, with your crazy policies, with your bullshit rhetoric, because of your general incompetence as a campaign, uh, and therefore, you, sh you guys are useless uh, and, uh, and corrupt and should be stripped of your positions. So, no, 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 the argument goes, we didn't lose it because of those reasons. We lost it because of WikiLeaks. Mm. Uh, and even worse, we lost it because of Russia. Mm. Yeah. The, the reason I'm sort of drilling down here is obviously because it's in the news at the moment. So I'm just trying to get, get out, this, get out your, your side of this. Uh, Roger Stone, who is associated with the Trump campaign without actually being on the Trump campaign, was boasting five days before the first Roger, WikiLeaks. Roger Stone, what, what is... Sorry, set up the question. No, yeah, set up the question, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what's coming. Five days no. before the, uh, the first WikiLeaks email, the, the Podesta leaks, uh, the, Roger Stone said, oh, something's huge coming, huge is coming from WikiLeaks. Um, did you guys have any contact with him or did he find it out from somewhere else? We had no contact with Roger Stone. Yeah. He, he's, he's just channeling uh, what our public statements were in the media that things were coming. Okay. Uh, what is Roger Stone famous for? Tell me, what is he famous for? He's famous for dirty tricks. Translated. Lies. Yes. <laughs> the guy is just famous for inserting himself in every situation. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he, he said that we were going to publish a whole lot of stuff uh, on Clinton on October 14, for example. Mm. No, we weren't. That was our 10-year anniversary. We had our 10-year anniversary. Mm. It was just our 10-year anniversary. <laughs> he, doesn't, he, doesn't know any, he doesn't have any insight whatsoever. Mm. Uh, yeah. I think that, that there's some, that we might have some mutual acquaintance, a guy I've never even met, which is a, a radio broadcaster at WBAI. Mm. But I mean, I have, you know, look, Jennifer Robinson, uh, my lawyer, an Australian lawyer, uh, uh, was living with one of the people on the Clinton Foundation board. So, I, you know, sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm closer, I'm, I'm closer connected in that sense to Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Okay. okay um, so fast forward to now. And we've got Trump in the middle of a leak frenzy. It's almost like the intelligence community of America have looked at what you guys did last year and said, yeah, we can do that. And they're just releasing it bit by bit by bit, just like you guys did with the Podesta emails. First of all, do you think they are copying your strategy? And secondly, how do you feel about that? Because the deep state are the guys you don't like. Well, I mean, they're, they're all going WikiLeaks, right? Uh, I, I just want to see them go full WikiLeaks. Uh, <laughs> 
which is, I have a bit of a problem. Look, we'll get to the politics in a minute, which is, which is extremely problematic. But uh, in terms of the methodology, uh, look, we, we publish pristine documents. We, we published, for example, pristine documents uh, on Friday, uh, detail showing the actual CIA orders to penetrate uh, the last French election, the political parties, and intercept the telephone calls and so on, steal their election strategies. Uh, so, so those are unarguable. Nothing like that has been published uh, in relation to us or in relation to Russia. Uh, we want to see things like that published. And these claims about Trump and uh, Flynn, we want to see pristine documents that people can analyse and argue about. We don't see that. We have, there's no quote from that um, Flynn, a Russian ambassador, telephone call, for example, not even a quote, alleged quote. Uh, what there is is US officials speaking to, you know, captive journalists uh, in the US press, uh, making one claim or another claim. And there's so many different claims from so many different angles, you know, they can't all be right. And so I think it's from a, a scientific journalism viewpoint, uh, these things are not falsifiable. There's not, there's not enough there that it can be falsified. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't like that too much. On the, on the, uh, on the, I mean, it's, sometimes there's enough there to start a discussion, which I guess is, is better than nothing. What, how, where do you think it's going? Like, what, what's, your read, what's your read on the situation? Because obviously you know a fair bit I love about... it. I mean, I think, I think it's, I think it's, well... The intermediate, the process, I love. I, th I think it's uh, uh, incredible that it's the 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 deep state, the CIA contractors, NSA intelligence agencies, FISA court, etc. Uh, the, if you like, the guys who consider themselves the permanent government of the U.S. because they're always there, no matter. Which, gov which government is elected and who feel that they really run the show because they have the most uh, knowledge uh, and they're connected into coercive force because they, uh, well, the CIA has its own coercive force, but they also brief uh, the military. Uh, yeah, there's not been uh, the scrutiny, uh, not been such scrutiny of the, uh, deep state since the 1970s and the, and the church uh, commission. I, I think that's uh, a marvelous thing. It's also t t turning the the new Republican base, uh, perhaps some of the old Republican base, not the not the Republicans in Congress who are very much aligned with the arms industries, but the the new Republican base is becoming a, is becoming a, some kind of anti-war, anti-intelligence movement. Uh, the, who could imagine a year ago that the re Republican base would be concerned about the activities of the CIA, the NSA, mass, mass surveillance, uh, how, how easy it was to uh, grab a warrant, sorry, how easy it is to spy on someone uh, without a warrant, uh, the uh, destruction uh, of Syria and Libya and whether that was warranted and whether it's producing terrorism and so on. Who would imagine a year ago uh, that that was possible? So I think that's uh, very optimistic. Uh, now, that the uh, 
intelligence agencies are making these moves against the newly elected government, uh, I think is very problematic. Uh, and that the US Democratic Party, the liberal press, are egging them on and approving of it is even more problematic. And we, we could well end up with a situation uh, where Trump is knocked off, uh, Pence will take his place, Vice President Pence, uh, one of the, you know, Republican old guard. Uh, and the, at the same time, the Democrats will all be piled up uh, with the CIA. CIA approval rating has gone up to 32% amongst the Democrats. It's down to 2% amongst Republicans. Um, and the, the, the Democratic base uh, will also be of the view that intelligence agencies and wars are great. So I think it's a very interesting time. We don't know which path it's going to go in. I think probably uh, that the probably that the uh, Pentagon uh, will win in the Trump administration, and maybe maybe Pence. Uh, you know, as a as a president of a state that has a large military intelligence apparatus, in fact, the largest the world has ever seen. Uh, you have to keep power over the state. And what are your basic instruments to do that? Uh, your basic instru instruments to do that are mass popular support, Let's see, mass popular support, uh, the arrest power that comes from your ability to arrest people, uh, principally through the FBI and uh, courts that will assist the FBI in arresting, uh, uh, the military, and the intelligence agencies, because the intelligence agencies have knowledge, uh, and I suppose the media, and you can feed knowledge to the media, and therefore you can influence the, the population. You can also influence these players. Uh, so, so if you do, if you don't have the intelligence agencies on your side, and why why doesn't Trump have them on his side? Well, principally uh, because a uh, patronage developed uh, under Barack Obama, and the CIA had as its number one project in terms of budget uh, the overthrow of the Syrian government. Uh, so about a billion dollars a year uh, spent by the CIA on that. Uh, so you've got, you've got, and that's been a project for six years. So we have a lot of people in the CIA heavily invested in that, and also in terms of their external relationships uh, with Saudi, Qatar, UAE, Turkey. Uh, yeah, so they're fighting... Uh, like dogs to preserve uh, their programs. And then you've got uh, cold warriors uh, and others who are adversarial with Russia, or that's their beat, and they are uh, elevating themselves by generating this conflict. Uh, so they're also opposed uh, to this new government. And then, of course, you've got the Democratic appointees who just know they'll be purged anyway and have nothing to lose. So. Trump, in response to that opposition uh, by the intelligence agencies, uh, is leaning on another part of the hard power of the state, which is the military. So he's uh, now uh, got four uh, uh, generals uh, in key cabinet uh, positions. And those four generals, uh, are, well, three of them are pals of Mattis, uh, general Mattis, who is also a general, uh, two of them fought with him uh, in Iraq in the, in the Battle of Fallujah. 
So I think that becomes an unfireable caucus, uh, which I think is very worrying. So you, you could end up could end up with a, a situation where uh, the cabinet becomes militarized. It is it is heading in that direction. The military are used to following chain of command, uh, so they're more the more they out of the gate uh, they start out as. Uh, more responsive to the president, who is who is the ultimate commander in chief in theory. So it's a, a difficult situation. I think I think people need to think really seriously uh, if they engineer a situation that is very accepting of intelligence agencies behaving uh, in that way, and which will lead to a situation of um, uh, a military heavy cabinet, and perhaps eventually with Pence as the as the president. On that, um, on that note, uh, uh, another pessimistic el element is that as outraged as the Republicans are at what's happened to Michael Flynn and all the rest of it, I haven't heard one person proposing cracking down with tighter laws on surveillance. No one said that. They, they, they talk about outing the leakers, but they never talk about actually controlling the people who are doing all the surveilling, which is a little bit depressing. But we do yeah. need to move on. Uh, not, not yet, not yet, but, but maybe, maybe, maybe it will happen. Let's hope so. Um, we do need to move on. We're going to get some questions from the audience now. While people are lining up down there, I'll ask you a question or two from Brisbane, which I've got written here. First of all, so guys, if you want to ask a question, please come up to the mic over there. Uh, and I will ask you, Julian, while we're waiting for that. Nick Monahan on Twitter asks, how is WikiLeaks going to evolve over the next 10 years? What role will it play in the mass media? Well, there's what will the mass media become over the next 10 years, I suppose, what, uh, is the bigger question. Uh, and what will be the, the nature of intermedi intermediation of communication of positions and knowledge uh, between people? That's having amazing effects, uh, uh, which is leading to uh, populist expression of various kinds. Uh, I mean, the Trump's election, uh, I suppose that maybe the number one factor is that over the last eight years that uh, the growth in wealth in the United States, about 2%, uh, per annum, uh, has gone to top 5% of the population. 95% of the population uh, uh, has had their, uh, didn't receive that growth or the growth has gone down and, and the bottom 50% in income has gone down significantly. It's probably a number one factor. But the, the, I think the second largest factor uh, is the, the removal of traditional hierarchies from the communication of position. Uh, and to a degree, knowledge as well. So it, it allows, you know, why do, why do revolutions happen in squares, like, uh, the, like the Winter Palace Square? Uh, what, what's the square got to do with anything? Uh, it, it allows people to see what the positions of others are and understand that they're not alone and that, uh, that eventually that they have the numbers. Uh, and so social media principally uh, is permitting uh, otherwise marginalized groups like the working class in the United States uh, to express themselves. Uh, yeah. So I, where's that going? Well, uh, 
the large intermediaries such as Facebook and Google are of course now setting up strategies to stop that uh, and uh, they're doing it in a, in a, you know, a politically acceptable way uh, to begin with. Uh, they're doing it explicitly now in relation to the French election uh, to stop the spread of quote fake news during the French election but of course uh, people have to make a decision as to what this fake news is. It's not a, a mathematical algorithm making the decision, it's people. Uh, and therefore, it's the elimination of uh, fake narratives uh, as described by those people who are appointed to the positions to judge. So we have a, uh, an open uh, discourse that, that leads inevitably to populism uh, and then a restructuring uh, by the intermediaries in that discourse to try and regain control uh, over what narratives uh, are likely to spread or can be spread. Um, so WikiLeaks feeds into that process. We're, we're, we're a provider of, of, of knowledge. I think over the, over the longer term, uh, it's a lot more automation from us because and so, you know, in many ways, we're, we're too popular uh, and it's a real burden to uh, keep up this 100% accuracy record. Uh, it, it slows down publication. It, it reduces the number of publications we can do. Uh, and there's many cases where people want to make uh, witness statements, for example, and they want to do it quickly in relation to, uh, to something that's coming out. Uh, our comparative advantage, which which any group has to work within. Our comparative advantage uh, is that we know how to publish the unpublishable, the politically un unpublishable. Uh, and we know how to do that from a technical perspective and we know how to do it uh, from a political perspective and a legal perspective and, and which data centers in which countries uh, do we have insiders in and so on. Uh, so, so this uh, permits us to construct uh, uh, any mechanism uh, where publishing what is otherwise unpublishable uh, is needed. And, of course, we're interested in, the, in those things that people want to communicate publicly, um, not privately, but they want to communicate publicly with each other that otherwise is somehow censored from society. Okay, we've got first question here, yeah? Hi, Julian. My name is Jesse, big fan. Mm -hmm. uh, I just want to know what the one piece of information uh, that you would want the public to know about, whether it's popular or hasn't yet been discovered on a public platform, is that you would want us to take away, read, and um, really learn and think about and then move towards how do we do something, how do we get known as a public group here today? I, I, what was the last part? Uh, I don't, uh, what do we do? What's the one file, piece of information you would want this public group to know? And then what does every individual do, yeah, do about to it. make them, their voice heard? There isn't, there isn't one piece. Uh, you know, the, what is special about WikiLeaks is that it, it's not just another damn story. It's not just another damn journalist putting their damn byline, uh, advertising themselves and their position on another damn story. 
There's um, billions of people in the world, uh, uh, millions of institutions. Uh, there's far more reality than there is press to digest and encompass reality. Um, and then, of course, you know, they, they distort the reality for their own purpose and the purpose of their institution and, we, and within their cultural cul-de-sac and so on. So WikiLeaks provides raw history about how institutions actually behave and not how the institution wanted to communicate itself to the world, but rather how it was forced for reasons of efficiency and hierarchy to communicate its observations of itself and the world to itself. So it, these were communications that were not uh, designed to manipulate you. Possibly they were designed to manipulate uh, some people internally, but they were not designed to manipulate the public. And therefore, as someone that is in the public, uh, you're not reading pre-weaponized knowledge. When you read a newspaper article, you are reading weaponized text that is designed to uh, affect a person just like you. So I think that is the, yeah, the, the real beauty of WikiLeaks, and it's in the scale. It is not one thing. It is, it is that sea of information, that treasure, intellectual uh, treasure, that rebel library of Alexandria that you can go into. Uh, you know, uh, last Christmas, I was at the embassy and there hadn't been very many people. And uh, so I was looking on the internet and thinking, you know, the internet is boring. I felt like I'd read the whole internet, which is obviously not true. But, uh, but somehow, you know, each new thing was kind of like the, kind of like the last thing. Uh, and it felt like pre-chewed food, you know, um, not real, kind of lame. Uh, and so I went, okay, I think I'll just read more of our stuff. We've got so much stuff. I think I'll go and read. I think I'll read some cables from like uh, when Mao died. What was the response to that when Mao died? And, and how, how was the US thinking that China would unfold? Uh, and so, yeah, I, I found them and read them. And these are great uh, um, distillations of history uh, at the moment. And with WikiLeaks, it's also quite recent history. Uh, if, now, that said, do I have a favorite uh, thing that we've published? Uh, yeah, it's these big data sets, but do I have a, f a favorite individual thing, a, a favorite cable? I do. It's, it's uh, a, a cable about how the head of NATO, uh, Rasmussen, the last head, was appointed. Uh, uh, and there's two cables on it. You, you can look them up. Just search for... Um, RO, WikiLeaks ROJ TV. So uh, Rasmussen, the head of NATO, is a former Danish prime minister. And uh, he wanted to move from being Danish prime minister at the end of his term uh, to being head of NATO. Now, in NATO, the various NATO member members have a veto on who can be the head of NATO. So Turkey said, well, we're not going to accept you to be head of NATO unless Denmark 
destroys Kurdish TV. Now, ROJ TV is the largest Kurdish language broadcaster and was headquartered uh, in Denmark, beaming up to Eurosat and then down uh, to the Kurdish regions in Iraq, uh, Turkey and Syria, Kurdistan. So a deal was done between the US Embassy, Barack Obama, the Turks, Rasmussen, uh, the uh, Danish intelligence agency, PET, and the Danish judiciary in the form of Danish prosecutor to take down ROJ, to, to look into going after on taxes, to think creatively, uh, to maybe they could go after on content that had been too biased, too Kurdish. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. They ended up knocking it off. And uh, it's appealed now to the European Court of, uh, European Court of Human Rights. And uh, those two cables are the star exhibit uh, as to why their de-licensing should be overturned. But Rasmussen got his plum job. So here we have a so-called pinnacle of liberalism uh, and Western democracy, Denmark, uh, with a completely corrupted judicial process uh, involved in destroying the largest broadcaster for an entire language group, the Kurds, so that the Danish prime minister can get a plum job in NATO. Okay. So. That's basically, it's like, you know, it's all, kind of all of Western civilization, just two tables. Hi there, Julian. My name's Sammy. I've just got a very quick question. It's a bit light, but I'm just wondering if you can tell me a bit more about Embassy Cat. Okay. Uh, my little cat, which is my little kitten, which is now a big cat, is uh, not around. Maybe someone will get him. Uh, yeah, I mean, my children, I have young children, uh, are worried about me. And obviously, my, my relationship with them is uh, very badly compromised. Very badly compromised. Uh, but anyway, they got me this cat, um, which is... Oh, look at that. Which is... He probably, he's not a good actor. <laughs> he's a good actor. Um, so he, uh, yeah, it's, it's just something psychologically, if you look at long-term prisoners, uh, lifers, they give them animals to look after. It, was, it is psychologically healthy. Uh, in fact, I became a bit obsessed, frankly. Uh, uh, with animals. So I, one of the, it is the one thing I suppose I'll admit to missing, which is animals, wild animals, uh, domesticated animals. Uh, so some, occasionally we get like a, uh, some salad vegetables uh, would be brought in and, you know, there'd be a bug, a lady beetle or a, or a slug, uh, uh, which I was delighted with. And, and I caught myself doing it and thought, you know, this is really pathetic. <laughs> this, this is like, you know, like the Birdman of Alcatraz or something. <laughs> uh, where you like some, some uh, prisoner is like uh, petting a cockroach in the corner. But um, 
Yeah, so I caught, I caught myself doing it, and I'm not so obsessed with the lady beetles now because I have a cat. <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah, thanks. Hi, Julian. Uh, my name's Grant. Uh, just have a question about the elite families of the United States, namely the uh, Morgans, uh, the Rockefellers, and the Rothschilds. Just wondering if uh, you think that these families and elites of the world run the United States in some part, and if so, what do you think is their agenda? I mean, they're, they're influential. I, I don't think those very well-known, uh, the, those very well-known family names, their influence is overstated. Uh, there's a lot of other families that are not so well-known that, that have uh, very significant influence. Uh, and indis uh, industries and associations, sorry, industries and institutions uh, have more influence. But, but, I mean, you can't, you're kind of right that there's a, there is a, a social mesh of family relationships, workplace relationships, and cronyism that uh, I don't know, don't know if I want to say largely decides, but is very influential in terms of what particular paths are chosen. G'day, Julian. You're looking uh, considerably more tanned than usual. Um, <laughs> this one's on the, uh, the topic of reasonable and open discussion. So you mentioned the perceived danger of truth, um, not to mention the media's futile attempt to ignore you. And in the past, you've spoken about an element of McCarthyism in the political landscape. So with your unique view of the world and given the peak of identity politics... Do you see these Alinsky tactics worsening or subsiding? I, I have to com complain about the, the, the reference to Saul Alinsky. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, Hillary Clinton uh, did her PhD studying Saul Alinsky, interestingly. Mm -hmm. But actually, I don't, you know, Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, for example, we read it, it's just, you know, it's like a, a much simpler version of uh, the art of war. It's uh, really, I, I don't, I think far too much weight is placed on that by the, uh, by the US populist right. If you want to talk about identity politics and how that has infected uh, the US Democratic Party and the middle classes in the United States, I think that's a much more serious issue, very serious for the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party has been in collapse uh, for the last uh, six years. Uh, it's not just in this election. Um, Two-thirds of governorships in the United States uh, are held by mostly Republicans, but by parties other than the Democratic Party. Uh, it's, it's collapsing at the governor level. Uh, nearly two-thirds, uh, nearly 38 states are now held uh, by, by the Republicans. There's a domination of Congress uh, including the, the House and, and the Senate. So why has that happened? Uh, well, identity politics is one of the reasons. Uh, but I think uh, a better description is a class description, that the, the relationships, the, the relationship between the Democrats and class was replaced by identity politics. Uh, as 
Democrats professionalized into the upper middle class. Um, now, historically, okay, it's not, it's not quite right, but uh, the Democrats obtained their power uh, from a un effective political union uh, between the middle class and the working class. And that's changed. Uh, that's changed to an effective union from uh, between the middle class and the wealthy class. Middle class, wealthy class, with the working class being replaced by various identity politics groups. Uh, and that's not something that, uh, it's simply something that doesn't have the numbers and is a bit politically incoherent. Uh, and so they, they have degraded. And they should go un under, they should uh, and would naturally have a very important reformation after this election. Uh, but they haven't. Uh, instead, uh, they have diverted to answering those questions, diverted from answering those questions into uh, trying to uh, justify their loss uh, and attack the incoming uh, Trump administration, uniting uh, the, the various different political strands uh, that are not Republican. Uh, hello, Julian. Uh, nice to talk to you. Great admirer of your work. Uh, there's an Australian journalist called John Pilger. Um, he's interviewed you a few times, and I'm just wondering what he's done recently to help you out. Is he a great help? Has he done a lot? John Pilger's a, a great guy. I admire him a lot. Uh, he uh, co-founded uh, my defence fund here, uh, together with a, a very good uh, friend who's... Um, um, died a few months ago, Gavin McFadgen, effectively my uh, father in the United Kingdom. He's a, he's a good guy, Pilger. Uh, uh, not appreciated nearly enough in Australia, but that's because Australia doesn't really exist. Uh, Pilger, okay, he's, 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 he's kind of, you know, a bit moralising sometimes. But that's, a, that's a tough guy and a good guy. Uh, and he's uh, what's my interpretation on why he hasn't had a fair run in Australia? Be because he's gone out and criticised the United States. He's like, uh, that's primarily what he does, is uh, criticise uh, US empire, occasionally some other empires like the USSR, uh, occasionally British foreign policy. He, he's kind of embarrassing in that respect, in the same way that I'm embarrassing as a, you know, each, each uh, state feels responsible for their citizens to other states. And, and I and Pilger are, you know, uh, a pain in the ass to, to influential people uh, in those other states. <laughs> the, the, the Australian state is kind of pathetically sucking up to all the time. Uh just a quick one from Brisbane before we move on. Uh, uh, from Cyril Joyce, did you meet with John Kerry in October 2016 and what was the substance of the conversation? I didn't meet with John Kerry. Uh, it would be interesting to, to, to imagine in what world that would be possible. <laughs> Maybe now. <laughs> Maybe now. I guess looking for anything 
But uh, uh, no, John Kerry uh, met with the Ecuadorian government uh, in Bogota uh, when the uh, peace accords between the FARC and the Colombian government were being negotiated. A lot of foreign dignitaries came in, including the Secretary General of the UN, the then Secretary General of the UN. Uh, and uh, my understanding, uh, I'm confident in it, is that uh, Kerry has said that there would be serious consequences uh, to Ecuador uh, if we kept publishing about the Democratic Party. So uh, absolute abuse of his position of Secretary of State uh, to lean uh, on another government uh, for party political purposes during the election to squeeze a refugee uh, in the territory of Ecuador to shut them up. But our publications weren't interrupted for a single day. Okay. Hi there, Julian. Uh, my name's Claire Riley. I write for CNET. Um, you've talked about WikiLeaks' MO uh, to publish without censorship and without selectivity, but information doesn't stand in a vacuum and there's a lot to be said for timing. So why has the push towards freedom of information become so closely tied with releasing documents for maximum impact? Well, sources don't give you stuff unless, <laughs> unless, it, un unless it's going to have impact. Uh, but if you, if you look at it from our perspective, uh, look, I, I have always thought that the real value in WikiLeaks is it is a wonderful library that you can trust about how modern institutions actually behave. You can cite it, you can trust it. It's the original pristine information. Uh, and okay, we also have some of our analysis and indexing and displaying and so on. But the, re the real value is it's this, you know, this rebel library of Alexandria. Uh, but the library has to be marketed. Uh, and so the, the scandal generation business, which we're also in, uh, I just view as a, as a kind of marketing effort for what is much more substantial, which is our archive. And that's what we do. But, you know, sources like that as well. They like you, you know, they, they go through risks uh, an effort uh, to get information, and they don't want to think that it's, it's in vain. They want people to read it. Uh, so we try and maximize uh, the value of the information to readers. Uh, so that's publishing it at the moment when they most want to read it, when they most want to know what it contains. And that's definitely before an election rather than after an election. And you can just imagine uh, if we had suppressed what the Democratic Party was doing inside, what the secret speeches were of Hillary Clinton to big banks until after the election. Okay, folks. That's a, that's, by the way, that's the, sort of, that's the sort of thing New York Times does do. Uh, it, for example, it suppressed the reality uh, of National Security Agency mass, in, mass domestic interception. Uh, of call records in the United States uh, across the re-election of George W. Bush. One more question. Sorry, guys. Hello, Julian. Um, my name is Mohsen. Um, well, my question is sort of a, 
a broad, I just want to get your view of a broad sort of sense of basically since the Trump's administration started and even before that there was a sort of a global concern about his political uh, directions and in more so uh, lack of political directions um, in a lot of uh, aspects that has global consequences, um, say, in, in an Orwellian sense of um, capitalism versus communism or Russia versus US. And um, I just want to see how you see the future of these conflicts going and the countries especially that are sort of happen to be in the middle of the front line of these conflicts, countries that are now being a part of the travel bans and the Muslim bans and so on. So I just want to know how do you see the future of these relationships between US and Russia going and what, what impact does it have on, on a global scale? Okay, I, I think that's about an hour. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, <clears throat> The liberal, the liberal plus neoliberal plus intelligence agencies critique of the incoming Trump administration. By the way, I, th I think most of that critique, I'll be frank, I think most of that critique is rooted in class. Uh, that sure, he, he has uh, uh, a bunch of kind of, kind of oligarch type business people around him. Sure, I, I agree. But I think most of the critique actually is a class-based critique. Some is a race-based critique. Uh, and the professional classes uh, feel threatened by someone who they perceive uh, to be the leader of the white trash. Uh, and that's really unsettling. And uh, so those people within Europe, which in general considers itself to be more cultivated uh, and is horrified about this crass American phenomena, uh, and those classes and interests who also feel threatened, they are now saying... Uh, as uh, Der Spiegel did a week ago in its editorial, which was echoed by some members of the German government, uh, that Germany can no longer look uh, to the US for leadership. And that's an incredible thing uh, for Germany to be saying that, if you, if you understand the history of politi politics in Germany. It's an incredible thing. Uh, similarly, the... Speaker of the House of Parliament here in, in the UK has said no, as far as he is concerned, uh, President Donald Trump comes to the UK later this year, will not be speaking in Parliament. The American President not speaking in the British Parliament. And in Australia, Paul Keating coming out and saying, uh, and more importantly, his words being echoed, uh, that perhaps Australia needs its own independent foreign policy. So I think these are incredibly positive developments. Uh, it's possible that there's a reality to Pax Americana uh, that, it, that has some positive elements. 
in some ways it's the it's the beginning of of, of countries feeling that they are are responsible for their own foreign policy in themselves. I don't want to overstate it because the the, the ties between the intelligence agencies and the militaries uh, in, in the Western countries are very strong and will persist after, it will persist through this uh, Donald Trump phenomenon, phenomenon and what comes after. Uh, but at least at the rhetorical and political level, something very important is happening. Okay. Julian Assange. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.